Good afternoon and welcome to the Catholic Opinion, our Friday afternoon radio show. And I'm your host for today, Father Anthony Sumich of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. So welcome along to our show. Uh, let's begin today's show with a prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit and they shall be created and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Amen. Let us pray. O God who taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. So welcome once again everybody uh, here on the Catholic Opinion. Uh, I've been spending a long period of time with the history of the Catholic Church and today we will be continuing with some of that history uh, class, I suppose you could say. It's been a long period of months and years talking through Catholic history. At the moment we've wound our way up to the Middle Ages and uh, we'll continue with that in the not too distant future. But first of all, I just want to put out, so give you some information about our apostolate here in Auckland, the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, our Society of Apostolic Life, founded by Pope John Paul II back in 1988. And we bring to the Auckland Diocese and many dioceses around the world the traditional Latin Mass and all of the sacraments associated with that in the traditional form of, uh, of being given to the faithful so you can find out some information about the priestly fraternity of St. Peter on our international website which is FSSP FSSP if you didn't hear me there FSSP.org or specifically about our apostle here in New Zealand at FSSP.nz and uh, we're based in the Auckland Diocese here with the permission of the uh, the ordinary of the Auckland Diocese Bishop Patrick Dunn uh, last weekend if you um, heard about it as I spoke last Friday. We had confirmations in the traditional form given by the uh, Auxiliary Bishop of Auckland, Bishop Michael Geelan. We want to thank him very much for his charity and his kindness for coming along to perform those confirmations. It's the first time he's done anything in the old rite and he did uh, very well. Everybody was very pleased with the, the ceremony, which was very beautiful, especially congratulations to those 12 people who were confirmed. So here in Auckland, if you want to find out some information about us, our website is fssp.nz. We also have a Facebook page, which is FSSP Auckland, which, of course, is where we are based. And uh, our apostolate here in Auckland is predominantly based out of Tiaratu, where we have the St. Anne's Chapel in Cold Place. You can find, of course, the information about this online. Uh, but we also have Masses in other places. For example, this evening, as it's the first Friday of the month, our Mass will be at St. Joseph Joachim Parish in Otahu in South Auckland, where we go every first Friday of the month. And our Sunday Masses, which are growing in, in size and, uh, and competency of our choir, who were absolutely magnificent last weekend. Our, our Sunday Masses are at St. Paul's College Chapel. For those of you who know Auckland, know that St. Paul's College is in Ponsonby on Richmond Road. And so we use the school chapel there. It gets constant use now every Sunday. So uh, you're welcome to come along this Sunday. We'd be very, very welcome to um, join in with the liturgy there. A couple of things coming up this month. Uh, one of the very important things is on 
Saturday the 12th of December. And on that particular day, we've been given permission by Rome to celebrate the Advent pre-dawn Mass of the Blessed Virgin Mary. There's a specific Mass which is allowed to be said with permission from Rome for the Blessed Virgin Mary during Advent, that period of four weeks before Christmas. And this is an Advent Mass in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Of course, she would be a couple of weeks out from giving birth uh, a couple of thousand years ago, of course. And so this Mass for the Blessed Virgin Mary is said without any electrical lights in the church. So the whole church is lit by candlelight and a very, very beautiful uh, ceremony which I'd welcome anyone to come along to. You're going to have to just get out of bed a little bit earlier than normal because that Mass is at 5 a.m., given the fact we're in the middle of summer and our days are much longer. So the sun coming up at 6, so that Mass is at 5 a.m. So you're very welcome to come along on that day. And also at the near the end of this month, we will be having a midnight Mass at St. Paul's. And, of course, it's at midnight. I mean, I can't imagine how it would not be at midnight and people calling it a midnight mass. And it's not. But it, regardless of that, um, the midnight mass will be at St. Paul's and Christmas carols will begin at 11 p.m. candlelit uh, carols. And then the midnight mass at starting at midnight and that will be a sung mass. So all are welcome. All right. So with that out of the way, let's get back to our... Uh, history of the Catholic Church uh, as of last week um, we were around the early 14th century we'd been talking about Pope John the 22nd who had been elected after uh, some toing and froing in the conclaves that had gone on for quite some time and there was of course clashes with the French king there are clashes with the emperor in Germany and worst of all uh, but the major part of this uh, history of the Catholic Church around this particular time was the papacy being moved out of Rome and the papacy being in Avignon in southeastern France. So uh, this was causing a lot of consternation no matter where you were, but Rome was in ruins at this point of time and it was a very dangerous city because of the warring between the factions of the Ghibellines and the Guelphs and um, with the, the force of the French king at that time and the large number of cardinals who were French uh, we ended up with French popes and they were um, staying in Avignon because of various circumstances but of course the the, the pope is the, the vicar, the bishop of Rome and so he needs to be in his see so this is the thing that overshadows this particular part of the history of the Catholic Church so Getting specific now in, in specific years, at the beginning of the year 1322, Pope John XXIII laid the city of Milan under a papal interdict after a final excommunication of its lord, Matteo Viconti, Viscount, so to speak in English. Matteo Viconti is a heretic because of his uncompromising defiance of the Pope. He was also charged with sorcery. Crusading indulgences were granted to those who took up arms against them. Now, this, of course, was an abuse of the idea of the Crusades, which were to free the, Christ- the Holy Land from um, Muslim yoke and to save the Christians who were being attacked by non-Christians. But the Pope has therefore overstepped his bounds and given indulgences uh, as if someone was a crusader who was to fight against other Christians or other Catholics. Crusading indulgences were granted to those who took up arms against them. An imperial claimant, Frederick of Austria, soon appeared in Italy with 2,000 troops. And under this kind of pressure, 
the leading citizens of Milan agreed that Matteo Viconti must go. So he was compelled to abdicate in favour of his son, Galeazzo. The papal legate, Cardinal de Puget, secured the cities of Parma and Piacenza in Lombardy and the next February opened a campaign against the Lombard Ghibellines, soon laying siege to the city of Milan. Meanwhile, in September of 1322, Imperial claimant Louis and his close ally John of Bohemia defeated and captured Frederick of Austria in a battle at Mühldorf in Austria. Many of Frederick's supporters came over to Louis at this point, but Pope John XXII set his face against Louis. He made up his mind to reject him as emperor, despite the objections of many of his cardinals. And in October of the following year, demanded that Louis give up his imperial claim and annul all his acts as emperor, while informing his subjects that they should withdraw obedience to Louis if he did not step down. So it remains, even to this day, uh, somewhat unclear as to why John XXII took this momentous step. Certainly Louis of Bavaria had given far less provocation than earlier imperial challenges of the papacy, such as Henry IV, Henry V, Frederick Barbarossa and Frederick II. Indeed, it's not easy to see how he had given any provocation at all. By all indications, he had won election fairly and with a majority of the votes. His allies in Italy, the Ghibellines, were strongly hostile to the Pope, but the Pope was no longer in Italy, so they presented no direct threat to him. Despite all the attempts of imperial propagandists to deny it, papal recognition was indeed required to become a lawful Holy Roman Emperor. Why else had so many emperors, including all those most hostile to the papacy, sought their coronation in Rome? But why, then, did Louis John XXII so stubbornly withhold recognition and confirmation from Louis of Bavaria? The most likely explanation is the continuing strife in Italy, which seemed to have no end. The searing division of Guelph and Ghibelline, which cut like a red-hot knife through almost every Italian city. The Italians might not like John XXII, but he did want peace among the Italians. And he did consider seriously at various points in his pontificate the possibility of returning to Rome. He may simply have concluded that it would never be peace in Italy until Pope and Emperor were in full harmony. And Louis of Bavaria had shown little interest in acting in concert with the Pope in Italy. So that may be the case. We don't know, but be that as it may, it's evident that Louis himself had little or no idea why he had been rejected. He was a rather stolid man, no natural rebel. He was even willing to consider abdication if it could be done without humiliation, but he would not submit unconditionally to the papal demand. Casting about for intellectual support and a voice more articulate than his own, he hit upon the unique idea We could say that he was a man out of his time, a precursor and a portent of things to come. The brilliant and iconoclastic Marsilio of Padua, an Italian physician and political theorist. Marsilio's Defensor Pacis, which he wrote, was nothing less than a rejection of all the independent and God-given authority of the Catholic Church as an institution. Instead of recognising the spiritual order as higher than the temporal, as every writer of Christendom since Constantine had taken for granted, 
however they might see the interaction of the two, Marsilio placed the spiritual order lower. Christ, he said, had not established a church nor granted any authority to the Pope. Whatever authority the Pope possessed was held only by grant from the temporal order, specifically by legislative bodies selected by vote. An ecumenical council was superior to the Pope and should be composed not only of clergy but of laymen elected by the people. Scripture was the only religious authority and the council should decide how it was to be interpreted when major differences arose. And further, he said that an ecumenical council could only be called by the state. The Pope and all the clergy were subject to the state. The Pope could only have what whatever authority the state and the council chose to give him. They could appoint, suspend, or depose him. The property of the church should not be exempt from taxation. The state should control its ultimate disposition. So, with this unique set of ideas of uh, Marsilio of Padua, this doctrine leads straight into the Protestant revolt, although it is coming a century earlier. So, and, uh, and straight through the Protestant result into the French Revolution. Christendom's deadliest internal enemy had shown its face. All that Marsilio advocated sooner or later came to pass. Even Emperor Frederick II had not gone this far. It was the first appearance of the worldview that was to destroy the medieval synthesis and ultimately, in the late 20th century, to destroy Christendom itself as a public order. There is no reason to believe that Louis of Bavaria grasped any substantial part of the true nature of what Marsilia was recommending. He saw only that it was a way of upholding his right to be emperor and his authority in Germany and a condemnation of the Pope who was denying him both. Marsilio called Pope John XXII the great dragon and old serpent. In similar fashion, Lewis became suddenly the champion of the spiritual Franciscans who insisted that the possession of property by the church or clergy was contrary to the command of Christ and rejected the authority of the Pope when he denied it. Pope John XXII, who had brought great wealth to Avignon and lived luxuriously there, though he does not seem to have been personally avaricious, gave particular offence to the spiritual Franciscans, who in turn gave particular offence to him. He had condemned them and their practices in two writings called Bulls in the years 1317 and another one in 1323. In his appeal of Sachsenhausen, issued in May of 1324, Louis of Bavaria took their side, accusing John XXII of a fixed determination to destroy perfect poverty, along with denying the necessity of papal recognition of the Holy Roman Emperor, calling the Pope an oppressor in Italy and even a heretic, and demanding a council. But neither hard words nor soft would move John XXII from the position he had taken. On July the 4th, 1324, he declared Louis was not and would never be emperor and that he would be deprived of Bavaria and all his other fiefs if he did not give up his imperial claims by the 1st of October. 
For more than two years, Lewis sought a compromise. Frederick of Austria was amenable, but the Pope was not. Once convinced of this, in 1327, Lewis appeared with Marsilio of Padua at an assembly of Ghibellines in the city of Trent on the northern border of Italy. He declared Pope John XXII unworthy of his office and withdrew recognition of him as Pope. He swore to lead an army into Italy and to Rome. The Pope responded immediately, ordering Lewis to leave Italy within two months and appear at Avignon on the 1st of October for sentence, depriving him of his imperial fiefs, condemning him as a public supporter of heretics and excommunicating Marsilio of Padua, along with a number of Lewis's other closest associates. In May of 1327, the angry imperial claimant came to Milan, where he received the storied old iron crown of Lombardy. The next January, the Pope proclaimed a crusade against him, and there were still traces of the crusading ideal left, enough to captivate a king of France in the next decade. But such proclamations did not improve their chances of survival. That same month, Lewis arrived in Rome and was crowned in the Basilica of St. Peter's. Marsilio of Padua was in attendance. None other than old Chiara Colonna, who had done his best to take the life of Pope Boniface VIII, placed the imperial diadem on Lewis's head. We may see the hands of Marsilio and Chiara's in Lewis's next and wildest statement a few days later, declaring Pope John XXII deposed by Christ and deprived of clerical orders by Lewis's authority. An anti-pope was set up, a spiritual Franciscan friar Pietro Reinalducci of Cordbara, who took the name Nicholas V. Marsilio was put in charge of Rome, where he persecuted the clergy who refused to cooperate with Lewis and with him, and fed the prior of the Augustines at San Trifoni to the lions in the capital just as the persecuting emperors of Rome had done. But in August, the traditional dying months for German and Rome, Germans in Rome, they all left the city, while the anti-pope amused himself by condemning a dummy of Pope John XXII as a heretic, depriving it of his insignia and office and turning it over to the secular arm. The next year, 1328, the Franciscan philosopher William of Ockham, whose nominalist doctrine that the attributes and actions of God were impenetrable to human reason, therefore in effect denying the whole science of theology, which St. Thomas Aquinas had devoted his life to advancing, escaped from Avignon where he had been imprisoned for heresy because of his doctrine. After going first to Italy, by 1330 he had made his way to Emperor Louis's court at Munich, evidently found its intellectual atmosphere pleasing, for he remained there for the rest of his life, which was to be some 20 years. Meanwhile, there had been unsettling political changes in both England and France. Edward II, an essentially incompetent ruler, had virtually turned his government over to a father and son, both named Hugh Despenser. The dispensers' accumulation of lands for themselves and their virtually complete control of access to the king increasingly angered the rest of the nobility. In August of 1321, the barons marched on London and forced Edmund to banish both dispensers from the kingdom, an action hitherto taken only against foreign-born noblemen. 
but neither dispenser actually left England, English ruled territory. The elder went to Bordeaux and Gascony, part of the hereditary domain in, domain in France of the English monarchs, whose title derived from that of Eliana of Aquitaine. While the younger found refuge in one of the English Channel ports, where he was protected by some of the king's men. In December, Edward revoked the decree for their exile, and in March 1322, he proclaimed the leading nobleman in the country, the Earl of Lancaster and his chief adherents, rebels and traitors for negotiating with the Scots. Taken by surprise, Lancaster was captured after a battle, convicted under martial law, with no opportunity to defend himself and executed. So with 62 other noblemen and the vindictive Edward or dispenser, we don't fully know, also imprisoned many of their wives and children and even several of their mothers. The nation sullenly accepted this outcome for the time being, but resentment against the bumbling but vicious king was now too deep to be eradicated. In the same year as Edward II's executions, King Philip V of France died as unexpectedly as had his brother. Like his brother, he left no sons, though he had five daughters instead of his brother's one. It was now accepted in France that women could not inherit the throne. Therefore, Philip's brother Charles took the throne without protest as King Charles IV. He too had no sons, but he was young and could still beget them. No one imagined that all three of the sons of Philip the Fair would die without male heirs, though that was just what was to happen. The following year, Charles IV summoned Edward II to do homage for the province of Gascony. This curious arrangement had a long history. When William the Conqueror, Duke of Normandy, took over England in 1066, he became king in that country while still a duke in France. As Duke of Normandy, he owed feudal homage to the King of France. As King of England, he owed no homage to anyone. 150 years later, England's King John of ill fame lost Normandy, but maintained a claim in southwest France, Gascony, which was part of the ancient Roman province of Aquitaine, derived from his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine. The later peace treaty between France and England arranged by St. Louis IX provided for the surrender of English claims to Normandy, but the retention of their rule in Gascony. However, for that rule, like William and his immediate successors in Normandy, they were still expected to swear fealty to the King of France. Only the King of England among all European kings did homage to another king for part of his royal domain. Neither he nor the kings of France were comfortable with this strange situation. The king of France wanted to bring Gascony under his direct rule, while the king of England wished to avoid the humiliating ceremony of homage. In February of 1324, Charles IV formally condemned and outlawed the English Seneschal in Gascony. Sir Ralph Bassett, an aggressive Gascon nobleman, Raymond Berard of Montpezat, for seizing a village near Montpezat, which the French claimed as theirs. When the English would give Charles IV no satisfaction in this matter, he declared Gascony confiscated in July and sent an army there which razed the castle of Montpezat to the ground. Edward II sent his wife Isabel, Charles IV's sister, 
to remonstrate with him. And Pope John XXII intervened, urging peace. Charles accepted a six-month truce and declared himself willing to restore most of Gascony to England if Edward II did proper homage for it. At first, Edward agreed, but then he balked, apparently at the urging of the dispensers, who did not wish to accompany him to France, but also did not wish to go out of their direct contact. Charles was persuaded to accept Edward II's son, Crown Prince Edward, to make the homage in his father's place, which the young prince did in September. Queen Isabel of England had long been deeply resentful of her fickle and incompetent royal husband, who had snubbed her for his favourite Piers Gaveston, with whom he appears to have had a homosexual relationship, immediately after their marriage, and allowed the dispensers to confiscate her estates because of alleged doubts about her loyalty in the event of a French invasion. Once in France with her son and out of the clutches of the dispensers, she showed no desire to return to England, telling her brother, the King of France, that her marriage had been broken and that she must live as a widow until the dispensers had been removed from power. Though scandalising her brother and many others by openly cohabitating with the dashing Roger, Roger Mortimer, a lord of the Welsh marches and associate of the rebel Duke of Lancaster, who had become only the second man to escape successfully from the Tower of London, she quickly became the repository of the hopes of many in England who hated the dispensers and despised Edward II. Turned out of France by her embarrassed brother, Isabel went to Hainault in the Low Countries, whose Count William II gave her 700 troops in return for the betrothal of Prince Edward to his daughter Philippa. With the small force and some English adventurers led by Mortimer and Edward II's brother, the Duke of Kent, she landed on the coast of Essex in September of 1326. Edward II ignominiously fled, and the people of London rose in Isabel's favour, brutally murdering Bishop Stapledon of Essex, the royal treasurer and former guardian of, the, of Prince Edward. The Archbishop of Can Canterbury barely escaped. Edward and Hugh Dead Spencer Jr. were tracked down and captured at Neath, Abbey on the Welsh border, tried, condemned, and executed in a single day. Dispenser was hanged on a gallows fifty feet high, then drawn and quartered. Under enormous pressure from a delegation sent by Parliament and led by the very political Bishop Adam Allerton of Hereford, pitiful King Edward II, with tears and sighs, agreed in January 1327 to abdicate in favour of his fourteen-year-old son, who thus became. King Edward III. The ex-king was shut away in prison and in September was said to have died, probably murdered. An extraordinary document found centuries later hidden in the binding of a cartillary of the Diocese of Magellan in France and preserved in the departmental archives of Héroult suggests that he may have been or may have escaped or been let go to wander disconsolately to Avignon and finally to a hermitage in Italy where he died several years later. Be that as it may, Edward II was probably the most complete failure of any king in English history, which does not justify his deposition done without any legal or constitutional, constitutional warrant. Edward III was made of different stuff. 14 years old, too young to rule, 
when his father was overthrown, even when he asserted himself by refusing to accept the crown until his father had consented to it. His mother and Roger Mortimer set up a regency with the aid of the new Duke of Lancaster and made a peace with Scotland called the Treaty of Edinburgh, which explicitly recognised Scottish independence. When the third successive King of France died without male issue, Charles IV, in February of 1328, Isabel made no immediate claim to the throne, either in her own name or in her son's, though she was now the only surviving child of Philip the Fair, thereby allowing the crown of France to pass to Count Philip of Valois, the nearest relative to Charles IV in the all-male line of descent. Philip now claimed, falsely, that French law neither permitted a woman to rule nor the royal title to pass through a woman, only later, after much searching of ancient records, the French jurists locate the long-forgotten tradition that such had been the law of the past. Later events strongly suggest that the young Edward III deeply resented these failures to claim what he regarded as his rights to rule Scotland and France, since he spent so much time of his reign trying to establish his claimed rights in both countries. So, um, we're going to pull up there. We're almost ending our time today. It seems like this is a, a seminal moment in this 14th century with uh, the situation of Edward III and the French crown and the Scottish crown and all of these other events swirling around. I urge you all to have a look uh, at our webpage, uh, our website, sorry, www.fssp.nz to see about the Rorate Mass coming up at St. Paul's College Chapel on 12th of December at 5 a.m. and also our program for Christmas with our carols and everything else. So let's conclude today's show with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May God bless and keep you all this weekend. Amen.